this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this auditorium. Uh, if you're new, my name's Jamie. Uh, most weeks I get the privilege of opening up the scriptures and attempting to unpack that uh, for God's glory and the good of his people. And this morning is no different in that regard. Um, before we get there, just to um, follow up on something that Jason mentioned, um, we are gonna have a partnership course on November 16th from nine to one. And, and usually that's a time that uh, we don't explicitly say this, but we, we tend to not invite existing partners into that time and space so as not to um, clutter up, up the room and, and overwhelm the room in terms of participation. However, because of the um, rollout of a new format and even new content with respect to the partnership booklet that we're bringing to bear in that context of that course. If you are an existing partner and you're interested in going through that, just to sit in on that and to see this new layout and kind of follow and track with um, some of the, the language and, and some of the, the ways that some of those things are communicated that we're really seeking to go after as a church, theologically, philosophically, strategically. How many other words can I come up with that end with ickly? Um, we'd love to have you participate in that. Definitely sign up if that's you, existing partner or not, so that we can make sure we have enough food that day. But um, existing partner or person who's looking to explore partnership. Either way, we'd love to have you join us on November 16th. With that being said, uh, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, we're right in the midst of a, a sermon series on Jesus's famous Sermon on the Mount. Uh, many of us who maybe are even least familiar with the Bible have, have heard of this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. And particularly, we're going to zoom in on a part of the Sermon on the Mount that uh, many of us have experienced historically in our experiences with Christianity and the church. I, I've described this series as a walk through the greatest sermon ever preached because Jesus is the greatest preacher who's ever lived. He's the Messiah himself having come to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, calling us to come under his reign, this radical turn from the kingdom of this world, uh, trusting that Jesus's kingdom is a better kingdom because Jesus is a better king. As we've um, talked about for, for the past few weeks now, He's the king having come to satisfy the heart-piercing demands of the law on behalf of sinners like you and me. He's the king having come to establish a Jeremiah 31 new covenant people on behalf of sinners like you and me on the basis of his broken body and shed blood. He's the king having come to embed his will deep within the hearts of his people, filling us with his spirit so that you and I might sing with our hearts and our lives the song of the kingdom of heaven far more beautiful song than, than that of the scribes and Pharisees as Jesus has shown us now for several weeks because it's a song of, of kingdom righteousness that works from the inside out, exposing our, our deeply rooted heart level intentions and motivations, bringing us to our knees in this poverty of spirit, which many of you, if you've been around for most of this series, have continued to experience over and over again, right? You just can't seem to escape the very first words of this sermon. Part of the heart of that in bringing us to our knees in poverty of spirit would be that we might actually be astonished with and overwhelmed by, by God's grace, a grace that oftentimes we, we take for granted or lose sight of, and so that we might live in light of that grace, more deeply fulfilling the kingdom ethic of love, love for God and love for neighbor. 
last week, we, we moved into chapter six where we saw Jesus begin to more intently focus on what it is to live in the presence of, of God in both glad submission and deep dependence as children of our heavenly father. Again, exposing the intentions and motivations of our hearts, but not simply as it pertains to things like harbored anger and lust, going back to chapter five, but also as it pertains to things like fasting and prayer, exposing not the dangers just of irreligious practice, but also religious practice, this propensity of the the human heart to use the sacred as a means of self-worship, you might say. Quote from last week, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we tend to think of sin as we see it in rags and in the gutters of life. We look at a drunkard, poor fellow, and we say there is sin, but that is not the essence of sin. To have a real picture and a true understanding of sin, you must look at some great saint, even some unusually devout and devoted man. Look at him there on his knees in the very presence of God. Even there, he says, self is intruding itself. And the temptation is for him to think about himself, to think pleasantly and pleasurably about himself and to really be worshiping himself rather than God. That, he says, not the other, is the true picture of sin. The other is sin, of course, but there you do not see it at its acme. You do not see it in its essence. Going back to last week, there were were those in Jesus' day who had made a practice of giving to the needy in ways that were sure to bring attention to themselves. There were those who would enter into places of heightened visibility at just the right time so that others might see them praying. There were those who had made a practice of leaving their faces unwashed and covered in ashes as a public display of the physical hardship associated with fasting. All of these things motivated by the desire for public recognition. The sacred, as I mentioned last week, turned egotistical and theatrical. Religious pretending, play acting. And for what? For the, for the praise of man, and a praise of man not even rooted in that which is actually true, but rather a praise based on theatrics. Jesus says, beware of making such things the motivation of your religious practice, for your heavenly father doesn't reward those kind of acts of hypocrisy. In other words, there is no reward from God for those who seek it from men. For those who make such a practice of giving to the needy, for those who make such a practice of fasting and prayer, Jesus says that the praise of man is all they'll ever get. It's a grasping at smoke, to use that Ecclesiastes language. It's an under the sun way to live. It's a kingdom of this world way to live. But I say to you, going back to last week, Jesus gives us a better song. There's a better song than the, the desperate song of insecure glory thieving namely the song of hidden graciousness and sincerity that rests in the Father's love. That, as I mentioned last week, knowing God as Father and resting in the truth that that you and I are his children, that's the way to true freedom and God-glorifying obedience. J.I. Packer, in his famous book, Knowing God, he says this. He says, you sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, he says, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you wanna judge how well a person understands Christianity, he says, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. 
If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. This morning, Jesus is gonna continue to drive home this truth as he presents us with some of the most well-known words in all of Christendom. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter six. We'll be in verses seven through 15 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, I think there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles, use it during your time with us. You can have that Bible if you don't own one or your translation that you happen to possess is a little difficult to track with. Let's pray and we'll jump in and we'll, we'll get after it this morning. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would open our eyes to the wonder of what it is to intimately converse with, relate to and with the one who made us, the one who knit us together in our mother's wombs, the one who set us apart and consecrated us before we ever took our very first breath, the one who opened the door for intimacy, relational reconciliation through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. I pray this morning that particularly for those who come in this morning maybe have a history with the Lord's Prayer, maybe the kind of history that looks back and, and sees something beautiful as having become a mechanical, rote, ritualistic exercise so that these very red-letter words, having come from the lips of our Savior and King, have negative connotations for some. God, I pray that all of us, regardless of our experience with the Lord's Prayer, would leave this place this morning encouraged, enlivened, comforted by what we find in these verses, that we could have a relationship with the living God and call him Father. Our Father in heaven is a miracle, nothing short of a miracle. Spirit of God who indwells us by way of our adoption in Jesus Christ. Would you move? Would you stir our minds and our hearts? Would you awaken us to the beauty and wonder of the gospel, perhaps for the first time, perhaps for the thousandth time this morning? We need you. We're desperate for you, me first and foremost. Would you give me a feeling sense of the things that I preach, as well as everyone in this room this morning, for your glory, God. In the name of King Jesus, I pray. Amen. So this morning, as you heard me allude to just now in prayer, we're gonna zoom in on, on one of the three examples of religious practice that Jesus addresses here in chapter six, namely the practice of prayer. As we talked about last week, the practice of prayer has been around since the dawn of creation so that Adam and Eve conversed with God in the Garden of Eden as a form of fellowship and, and worship. You see, a prayer scattered throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Abraham prayed to God for the healing of Abimelech. Isaac prayed for his wife, Rebecca, in the midst of her barrenness. Moses prayed to God as a mediator on behalf of Israel on a number of occasions. Hannah prayed to the Lord in the distress of her barrenness and the gift of her son, Samuel. Elijah prayed to the Lord in that famous episode with the prophets of Baal. 
David prayed to God for cleansing in the wake of his affair with Bathsheba, and, and we could just keep going, right? It's all over the scriptures, prayer. Jesus assumes the practice of prayer, as Marilyn mentioned just a few minutes ago, going back to verse five, when you pray. The Jewish people had their appointed times of prayer, morning, day, and night, and knowing those appointed times of prayer, there were those who were after public recognition and self-adoration who would place themselves in spots of heightened visibility in the community so that others would see them praying, not motivated by a desire to, to meet with God, but a desire for, for glory. But there was another issue that Jesus saw in the prayers of the Gentiles that he addresses here with his disciples, verses seven and eight. He says this, he says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Some pagans apparently believe that, that if they named all of their gods and brought their request to each of them, they'd have this better shot at, at getting a favorable response. A mechanical, heartless, rote exercise focused primarily on manipulating circumstances. Jesus isn't saying that we should never pray repetitiously, which is the very thing that he would actually go on to do in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you read Mark's gospel account, chapter 14, we're told uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and, and found Peter, James, and John sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And listen to this. And again, he went and prayed, saying the same words. You, you see it also in, in Psalm 136, where the psalmist declares the same phrase 26 times, for his steadfast love endures forever. As has been the case throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not so much coming after the mechanics of our prayer life, but rather the sincerity of, of our hearts in approaching our Father in heaven. How then should we pray, you might ask? Well, thankfully, Jesus tells us. He says in verses nine through 13, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Famous Lord's Prayer includes six petitions, if you look closely. The, the first three having to do with God's glory, his name, his kingdom, his will. Look at the pronouns. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. The last three petitions having to do with, with our well-being, our provision, our pardon, our protection. Look at the pronouns toward the end of the prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Frederick Bruner in his commentary, he says, the Lord's prayer, and this is amazing to think about. The Lord's prayer stretches from the father at the beginning to the devil at the end, from heaven to hell, and in between in six brief petitions, everything important in life. St. Jerome in the early church once said this, the scriptures 
are shallow enough for a babe to come and drink without fear of drowning and deep enough for a theologian to swim in without ever touching the bottom. That's the Lord's Prayer. It's accessible to every person in this room in terms of the simplistic nature of it. And yet Jesus leaves space for us to endlessly explore the implications of it all so that Every one of us will likely walk out of here wishing for more this morning because there's no way we're going to exhaustively talk about the doctrine of God's fatherhood nor the doctrine of God's name and what it means to hallow that name or the doctrine of the kingdom, a biblical theology of the kingdom or what it looks like across the story of the scriptures that God would provide for his people, giving them daily bread or the forgiveness of sins or the doctrine of temptation and evil. There's so much embedded in this brief, simple prayer. So that as you leave this place, you can expect for years, maybe even decades to come, to continue to grow in a deeper understanding of exactly what Jesus is saying here in these five verses. He begins with these words, our Father in heaven. I'm gonna stop there because I would argue that these four words are the most critical that flow from Jesus's lips. Why do I say that? Because our view of God informs our prayer life. Jesus begins with with this unbelievable both and, you might say. Like so wondrous that, that if it were to truly grip our hearts, would radically shape or reorient the way we pray. C.S. Lewis Shocker captures the the both and beautifully in in his famous Chronicles of Narnia. Many of you have heard this before in the character of Aslan. Very famous um, scene in the the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are trying to make sense of who Aslan is to the Pevensey kids. And, And the kids have this idea in their mind that Aslan is a man. And they come to find out that Aslan rather is a lion. Susan responds with, oh, I I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. You have that famous line that gets quoted oftentimes, safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? (laughs) Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And then Peter, I'm struck by these words every time I read them because I think they're more profound than anything that's been set up to this point in the story. Peter says, and here's the both and, I'm longing to see him even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. I've gotta be close to him. I've gotta wrap my arms around his big bushy mane, like those scenes that you see between Lucy and and Aslan. I've gotta experience his nearness, yet the thought causes me to tremble in reverent awe because he's the king. Aslan, if you haven't read the stories, that would be a sermon application this morning, by the way. He's the Christ figure in Lewis's writing. But... According to the scriptures, it's not just God the Son who embodies this beautiful both and, but also God the Father and God the Spirit. God the Spirit, we know this because of what the scriptures tell us about the Spirit of God. Look no further than the book of Acts. God the Spirit could shake the very foundations of this building right now if he chose to do it. 
God the Spirit in his perfect purity and holiness can be grieved by you and me. And at the same time, wonder of wonders, God the Spirit intimately indwells us. It's a glorious both and. Jesus begins his prayer here in Matthew chapter six with the perfect both and representation of God the Father. Our Father in heaven. In heaven declaring that, that the earth is his footstool as he sovereignly rules over all things. Like God is so incredibly majestic and holy so that our most reverent thoughts of him fall short of his glory. And yet, and yet, we can approach him as our father, the royal children of God that we are. Is that not amazing? Like, so that Intimacy with God is not sacrificed on the altar of reverence toward him, nor is reverence toward God sacrificed on the altar of intimacy with him. Sinclair Ferguson in his commentary says, in the opening positions of his prayer, Jesus brings together two ideas that are true only of royal children, the intimacy of children and access to the great king, he says. The one we address in prayer is in heaven, and yet he is our father. The whole of our worship, he says, flows from these few words. They, in turn, invest our worship with the grandeur and the joy of true praise and adoration. One way to kind of assess where you are this morning would be to ask, how do my prayers honestly begin? If they were based on my my current functional perception of God, meaning not, not what you believe to be true of God confessionally, doctrinally. We, we could all you know, work through a systematic theology book and come up with the right answers to those questions, but rather what your heart believes to be true of God in this present season of life. How would you begin verse nine? For some of us, maybe it's our absentee landlord whom I need to fix some things in my life, but never seems to be anywhere on the premises when that's true. Or our angry curmudgeon in the sky whom I just know is waiting for me to blow it so that he can hurl lightning bolts at me. Or our divine genie in a bottle whose job it is to serve me in granting my wishes. The most critical piece of the Lord's prayer, Jesus says, our Father in heaven, which he follows with these words, hallowed be your name, or hallowed if you grew up in a very liturgical church. That, that first petition having to do with none other than the, the glory of God, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. As his children, we, we long for God to be glorified, right? For his name to be hallowed, to be honored. God's name meaning all that's true of him, all that's been revealed concerning him, all of his great acts on the stage of human history. Like Jesus says, may your name be honored. May your reputation be set apart as holy and beautiful. Your name is not absentee landlord. Your name is not angry curmudgeon in the sky. Your name is not genie in a bottle. Your name is Elohim, creator and preserver of all things, powerful one. Your name is Adonai, master and ruler. Your name is El Shaddai, omnipotent one, the one able to help in time of need. Your name is Yahweh, I am who I am, the unchanging, self-sufficient, self-existent one. 
Your name is Father. The one who's adopted me as his own. God's name is to be hallowed. And yet, as we've seen throughout this series, the kingdom of this world stands opposed to God's glory and honor. How is the hallowing of God's name gonna happen? Jesus goes on to say in verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we've, as we've seen in Jesus' teaching up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, God has come in the person of Jesus Christ to, to take back his world from us. The king having come to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. Jesus having come to, to restore us, to transform our hearts and to align our hearts with the song of his good kingdom in submission to his kingship as we bend our knee in glad submission to the will of our heavenly father so that we hallow God's name. We honor God's name with our, with our hearts and our lives while at the same time longing for the consummated kingdom of God God's renewal of the entire created order as we know it, his eternal kingdom established here upon the earth, what theologians refer to as the age to come. We sing about it around here from time to time. There's a far kingdom on the other side of the glass and by a faint light we see still there is more gladness longing for the sight than to behold or be filled by anything. As the apostle John says at the end of the Bible, as it's laid out for most of us. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Father, your name, your kingdom, your will. The first half of Jesus' prayer is, is about orienting ourselves in allegiance and, and glad submission in response to the kindness and grace of our Father in heaven. The second half addresses our deep dependence on and desperate need for him. Look at verse 11. Give us this day, our daily bread. Having begun with the glory of the Father and his kingdom, Jesus moves into the neediness of the Father's children. A prayer for provision for our heavenly Father to meet our needs. The language of, of daily bread surely would have brought to mind the story of the Exodus for those sitting on this mountainside with Jesus. God providing manna from heaven for the wilderness wandering Israelites between the time of their liberation from Egypt and their entrance into the, the promised land. Like Israel, we talked about this in the Hebrew series, we live as Christians between the time of our liberation and our entrance into glory. And like Israel, we're dependent upon and desperate for the Father's generosity in giving us the basic necessities of life. It's this posture of neediness and dependence, which just, again, goes back to the beginning of this sermon, of a posture toward God that doesn't take for granted that which comes from his hand as our Father, which is actually what compels our, our own generosity, right? God's been kind to me in meeting my needs. How can I not participate in meeting the needs of others? Acts chapter two. He's provided me with food on the table and food for the soul, both now and at the marriage supper of the Lamb to come. Revelation 19. Jesus goes on to say, verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. He moves from provision to pardon 
an essential lyric in the song of the kingdom, you might say. It's, it's interesting language for the children of God, is it not? In light of what the apostle Paul would go on to write, very famous passage, Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you, Paul says, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Here it is, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside Nailing it to the cross, Paul says. So that it's not crazy for us to sing, oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. It's not crazy for us to sing, Jesus paid it all. And at the same time, God wants us to confess our sins as we sin, just like King David, Psalm 51. Coming to him for forgiveness in the confidence of justified adopted children approaching their heavenly father. Philip Ryken in his commentary says it this way, sums it up, I think appropriately. He says, the debts we ask God to forgive when we pray the way Jesus taught us to pray are the very debts that were crucified with Christ at Calvary. So that the poor in spirit see the depths of their sinful condition. They are those who mourn and run to the Father for restoration. And isn't it it really good news that this is a Father to whom we can confess our sins? A Father whose kindness does lead to repentance? Jesus goes so far as to say that, that we give evidence to whether we're truly children of God by whether or not we forgive our debtors. If we don't forgive others their trespasses, it shows that we haven't truly internalized the the grace and forgiveness that we've been shown in Christ. One of the great signs that that God's grace has truly deeply worked its way into our hearts is the ability to both receive it and extend it. If hearing Jesus saying to the Father on our behalf, and just stop and listen to, to Jesus speaking these words on your behalf, Father, forgive them. How could we not respond to that by directing that same wondrous pronouncement toward those who have sinned against us? As challenging as that may be when we actually put tracks on the ground for that. He goes on to say in verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Final part of Jesus's prayer, it's about protection. The kind of protection that, that only those who know they're vulnerable and weak would dare ask for. Again, it's the poor in spirit who who pray to be kept from temptation. And if not, that their heavenly father would deliver them like Jesus when tempted in the wilderness. Which by the way, is a reminder that facing tests and trials is not a sign that the father has abandoned you. I don't know what you're going through this morning, but if that's you, if you go, I'm in the midst of a test, I'm in the midst of a trial. No, as a child of God, the father has not abandoned you. Any more than Jesus was abandoned by the Father in his time of testing, going back to Matthew chapter four. Rather, it's a sign that the Father's actually with you and will deliver you from evil. Second Timothy 4.18, Paul says it this way. Confidently, Paul says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We know that Our final deliverance from evil will come when Jesus 
returns to set all things right on that day to use that Narnian language when the white witch and her band of followers will be banished forever. And we, God's children, will live, think about this, happily ever after in a world where temptation and evil shall be no more. Jesus goes on to say, I find this interesting, verses 14 and 15, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. I mean, Jesus could have stopped in verse 13, right? He, he summed it all up. In some sense, he's bringing in a repeat here, right? Why, why would he do that? And, and in doing so, why would he go back to the piece having to do with debts and debtors of, of all the things Jesus could have put on repeat in the Lord's Prayer? There's a, a bit of that left to speculation. Perhaps it's that at the core of the gospel is the Father's forgiveness. Going back to last week, the word Father shows up 10 different times in the first 18 verses of chapter six alone. That we talked about this last week. The Lord's Prayer is only ours to pray on the basis of our forgiveness and adoption in Christ Jesus. Like, if you're not a Christian, that's it. That's the takeaway. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, you can become a child of God and cry out to your Father in heaven. That the cross reminds us that God gave his own son that you and I might become sons and daughters of God. That because the Father turned his face away from the Son, he can turn his face toward you as his child in love. So that if you're not a Christian, I would invite you to turn to him now in faith and trust and know the wonder of a father-child relationship with the living God. And, and if you are a Christian, just in consideration of, of the part of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus does put on repeat, consider the parts of the Lord's Prayer that surround that section on debts and debtors. Give us this day our daily bread and lead us not into temptation. Jesus knows, going back to Matthew chapter four again, that it's possible to be led into temptation without daily bread for 40 days, mind you. Jesus knows this by his own personal experience and for that not to inhibit intimacy with the Father. Yet I would argue, and I think this is biblically accurate, that it's impossible to sweep that stuff about debts and debtors under the rug without inhibiting intimacy with our Father in heaven. Again, sheer speculation as to what, whether or not that's what Jesus is doing here in verses 14 and 15 and putting that aspect of the Lord's Prayer on repeat, but it certainly brings us back around full circle to the wonder of intimacy with God as our Father and we as his children and what it means to walk in a, a restored relationship with him. I'll come back one last time for those who, who might be thinking, well, I mean, what do I do with this? Like I... Okay, I get the, the reality that our Father in heaven might be the most significant thing to grasp in all of the Lord's prayer because it, it orients my, my thinking and my heart to who God is as I approach his throne of grace. That's a big deal. But, but what do I do with this? How do, I, how do I engage in a prayer like this without it becoming a, a mechanical, rote, ritualistic exercise hollow of, of emotion? How, how do I go about something like that? And that's where I think coming back to Psalm 136 can be helpful 
I just invite you to turn there for just a second. Um, and, and I wanna, I wanna show us something maybe to consider as it pertains to the Lord's Prayer coming out of Psalm 136. Psalm 136, Jesus, excuse me, the psalmist, um, been talking in red letters for too long. In Psalm 136, the psalmist over and over again says, for his steadfast love endures forever. There's something repetitious about that, right? But, but notice what's coupled with that repetitious phrase for the better part of, uh, what is it, 26 verses? Notice that beginning in verse one, listen to this language. And then I wanna attempt to put this in perspective as it pertains to the Lord's prayer. The psalmist says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them for his steadfast love endures forever. I'm gonna stop there. I think you, you, you're beginning to pick up on where I'm going with this, I would bet, that we can do the same thing with the Lord's Prayer and, and watch it come to life off of the very pages of Scripture for us. As an example, God, you provided for our first parents the fruit of a multitude of trees to eat from. Give us this day our daily bread. God, you provided manna in the wilderness for the wandering Israelites on their way to Canaan. Give us this day our daily bread. God, you provided the true bread from heaven, Jesus Christ, for us. Give us this day our daily bread. God, there's coming a day when we will sit at the banqueting table at the marriage supper of the Lamb and be satisfied forever. Give us this day our daily bread. That's just the story of the Bible. Then you begin to bring your own life story into it. God, you provided in 2010 through 2013 when we were a one-income family pursuing a graduate degree in seminary and had no idea where food on the table was gonna come from month to month. Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, you begin to bring your story into it and, and notice even the language of the Lord's Prayer. It's not even a, a me thing. It's an us thing, right? It's not give me this day my daily bread. Um, lead me not into temptation, but rather there, there's this beautiful doctrine of the redeemed within Jesus's prayer so that we can even look at the lives of others and see the way God has provided daily bread in the lives of others within the body of Christ and repeat that same phrase, give us this day our daily bread. God, I've seen it in the lives of those in my community group. I've seen you do it in the past in my own life. Give us this day our daily bread. That's one short line out of the Lord's Prayer. We could just do that with every line in the Lord's Prayer and, and take this Psalm 136 approach and, and watch God be magnified, honored, glorified in all the ways that he's moved by his mighty hand throughout the course of human history.